Marshall Plan for Main Street. The Fury Theory starts right now. The Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. The stock market stabilizes. Congress works to expand a new program. The Chamber of Commerce weighs in. We are doing our first Zoom podcast on the Fury Theory. This is a very exciting time, uh, a little bit depressing. Let's not kid ourselves. And we are ex- really doing extreme social distancing, which is what we're supposed to do under the law. John Eason, how are you in your remote location? Uh, I'm doing as well as uh, I can, right? Or doing like what a lot of people are doing, which is hunkering down with the family and just praying that strong Wi-Fi stays upon us. It's all all about the Wi-Fi. Adam Belmar, how are you holding up in your remote location? I am doing very well, actually. I'm I'm proud to say that I'm I'm feeling healthy and strong. I'm respecting the social distancing rules and staying in close contact with all of my loved ones, including my partners on this podcast, my parents who are in South Florida, and my sons who are with their mom in Falls Church. And I would say that uh, Clark Kent misses you and wants to say hello at the earliest possible, uh, most convenient time. Uh, John Easton, Republicans always seem to understand the importance of small business. They are indeed trying to plus up a program that was just created a couple weeks weeks ago under the CARES Act uh, and get it done as quickly as possible. Do you think that Democrats have that same appreciation for the importance of small business? Well, I think so. And, and I think to your reference, John, about this um, plus up of the SBA program, uh, which already is, has $350 billion put into it from the, the passage a week and a half ago of, of the CARES Act. Um, you know, I think it, the plan was to vote on this on, on a plus up of maybe another $250 billion by, you know, within this week. And the status is, I just heard that that uh, vote that was supposed to happen tomorrow or they, they were hoping would happen tomorrow in the Senate may get pushed back. I don't think that's a big surprise. To your question, I, I think that what happens in situations like these, particularly in today's political climate, is that we sort of retreat to our, you know, our, our messages to our bases. And, and you know, Republicans are reflexively pro-business and, and always pro-small business, um, knowing it's a lifeblood of the economy. And Democrats, you know, they tend to drift toward that protecting the social safety net. And that's kind of where their base lies in terms of a huge priority. So they, they talk like that a lot. But I do think that, you know, what Democrats are saying is one is they'd like to see uh, a lot of this lending uh, happen with in the small community banks as well as the traditional banks. So make it easier for them, which I think is reasonable. And then, of course, uh, you know, with some of the hospitals, uh, the funding mechanisms with the hospitals and providers, I think they want some changes or at least additions there. So that that's sort of where. There's not really fault lines. I think it's kind of where you choose, how you choose to talk about this. But this to, this plus up of the SBA, the Small Business Administration Program for these small businesses, that's going to happen probably by voice vote this week. So I, I don't think there's going to be much problem among Democrats or certainly not Republicans. Uh, Adam Belmar, um, one out of four small businesses will close permanently, according to the Chamber of Commerce. I hope we're not one of them because we're a small business. There are a lot of small businesses on this block. We got our frame shop friends. We got Eaton, who does the uh, the shoes. We've got a labyrinth. We've got uh, East City Books. All these are small shops. Um, looking at this and thinking about the future, do you think that 
there's been enough focus on small business by the president and by Congress? Do you think they're, they're kind of putting the, the focus intensely enough on all these small businesses that might, you know, unemploy millions and millions of people? I feel like there has been a very important focus on both sides of the aisle on everything that you just talked about. But, and this is a really big but, we have antiquated systems across the board at the state levels and in other places that make a very important disconnect between what is happening here in Washington, what the feds are doing in order to help small business and put money into a fund in order to get it to folks and then actually getting it to people. I listened to one of our clients, the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. They did a tele-town hall with Representative Donna Shalala today. And she has great experience, not only as a former head of HHS, a university president, now an elected member of Congress from South Florida. But what she was talking about, John, was, <clears throat> You put that money out there for SBA, but so many of these small businesses like us, like the other ones you're talking about in our area and across the country, have never dealt with SBA, have absolutely no function or capability to interact with them now in a time of crisis. And even if we did, getting that funding to people in order to keep those businesses alive and their employees afloat is impossible. It's just not able to make a connection. So. The feds are doing what they can, but there's still so much more to do. Uh, John, you know, we have, we've got a lot of really great clients and they're, they want information. They want to, um, you know, effectively represent their interests uh, before policymakers. In this atmosphere where everyone is all over the place, how do you effectively lobby? How do you effectively get in front of lawmakers if it's impossible physically to get in front of lawmakers? What are your what are your what are the strategies that we're doing here at EFV? Yeah, that's really you you nailed a, a a very important component of what's going on in really society right now. Everybody's having to adapt. Everybody's having to change their methods. Uh, a lot of online work is being done. Obviously, look at us right now, and we we value this podcast. We think it's really important not only to do the three of us, but to our clients, to um, into our business. So you know, people are finding ways to make their priorities continue. I think with lobbying Congress, um, I think it just means more, more conversations on the phone, right? Um, you know, a little bit of FaceTiming here and there. Um, you know, we were already doing that, a lot of that, but it's just, it's, it's a lot easier sometimes, you know, when you're having coffee over in the House of Representatives or in the Senate and the cafeterias or in the restaurant, you know, to run into people and find out what's going on and, and actually, you know, impart you know, some nugget of information you have to them and vice versa. So that is gone right now. And then, and I think it does remove a, a really effective and important avenue to how business gets done in, in Washington. And I say that in, in the most civic of ways. I mean, it just, it's, it's important that people do have face-to-face -face time like that. And, and I think that is true of every sector of this economy, even the high tech sector, you know, all those, when they're in that in their bullpens, whether it's in Google or Facebook and or, or you know the small startups, they're they're putting their heads together, you know, in front of whiteboards and they're and they're and they're doing things, incredible things like that. And I do think this removes an important layer. So while we're doing it and we're doing it every single day and we're staying in touch with mem staff members, 
uh, and from a kid, I, I tuned into this uh, webcast with uh, Congressman Greg Walden this morning, and it was excellent. It provided a tremendous amount of information and what's going on with his committee, the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, you just have to do things like that, and all the time, every day, and it's funny, you know, this is no snow day. This is no break. Uh, we are working, and, and just like most people are who have, you know, the privilege of continuing to work and being get, getting paid, you know, we're working all the time, every day. So, um, and it's actually pretty hard to work if you have small children around. I, I say that as a, a dad with a seven-year-old, and it's, um, it's hard to keep that focus, but we're, we're working hard to keep that focus. You know, Adam, one of the things that we do really well, I think, at EFB is help with uh, narrative storytelling. And talk about how you go through the process of telling, telling these stories and why that's so important when it comes to advocacy. Yeah, the uh, the thing that John Easton said at the beginning of the podcast about falling back on messages, I think, is very insightful. And when you're talking about narrative storytelling, especially in the advocacy space, you can't just do that. You need to understand what is happening every day. How are things changing? How are people reacting in their personal and their private lives? And in this case, with the COVID-19, that's all come together. We've been talking about that. And so one thing we do at EFB Advocacy is we try and harness voices to actually share real-time stories. So we've, we've launched a number of podcasts in the last few weeks. We are, as ever, trying to help our clients help their clients. And that means getting to know what's really going on. That means attending their webinars. That means reading all of the emails that they're reading and staying in constant contact, just as John Easton is doing on behalf of our clients and you are with members of Congress and staff, we too are trying to stay very connected with our clients and their members. Um, and also I just wanna say, we have made a very big deal at EFB Advocacy about showing, really leading and showing what a podcast, a narrative, iterative, weekly communications tool can look like over the last three years. It's a burden. You do it once, okay, but you do it every single week. You're making time for it. But it is a muscle that you have to flex if you're going to be in this new, brave, digital, Zoom-oriented world. And so we're trying to share that experience that we've been building with our clients and help them turn that around. I just changed my backdrop to illustrate. Hey, hey wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you, are you in the, the White House briefing room now? So I was saying, I, I changed my backdrop in order to oh. make the point that all of us, including elected officials, are very visual in what they do. When members of Congress aren't here, John, and they have uh, no access to the normal bully pulpit of the Ohio clock or any of the trappings of Congress or even the recording studio, who is it? Let me just sort of move out of the way. Oh, That's the president of the United States. And I'll tell you something, I served for a couple of years as the uh, production chief and uh, deputy communications director for George W. Bush. And I can tell you that even if you don't like this president, one thing that he is doing to great effect is utilizing the trappings of his office and the ability to share information and bolster the confidence of America. Now, I don't want to get into whether, you know, he is saying things that are incorrect or stepping on other messages. The point I really try to make is that we're visual creatures, we're narrative creatures, we believe in storytelling because that's how we all communicate. That's what we're doing and that's what the people who are best at this are doing. Hey John, um, you know, when I served in Congress, we had this thing uh, 
this anthrax attack. And anthrax was tough because all the members and staff couldn't go in their buildings. They couldn't go home. They, they, they had to go home and they, they couldn't work from uh, the, their typical locations. And it really became a very difficult time to legislate because Congress at that time and since then, they're all about coming together. That's what Congress actually means, coming together. Uh, and the, everyone was a part. It made it very, very difficult to communicate. And it led to a lot of mistrust. It, it led to a lot of uh, people uh, kind of going in different directions. And it was very, very difficult to bring everybody together. I, I, I sense the same thing with what's going on with Congress right now. And what ends up happening is that Congress does the lowest common denominator or tries to. And, you know, you mentioned the PPP program. Talk about how difficult it is to legislate in this type of environment and what do you expect to happen in the next couple of months? I mean, um, kudos and appreciation to the staff members in the House and Senate who, like, who put together that CARES package uh, that pushed out, you know, that enormous amount of money, $2 trillion, to try to stabilize the markets, to try to keep people employed. And they did that on the fly, you know, at times flying blind, really. I think they were going from conference call to conference call to conference call. Um, you know, phone calls from, from Secretary Mnuchin and to Chuck Schumer. Then he next, right after that, to McConnell, back to Schumer. I mean, just shuttle diplomacy without being face-to-face. -face. And so I think that my biggest problem with, with the, the atmosphere that led into this, uh, this crisis, this pandemic, is that it's so deeply ingrained, you know, this, this toxic political era that, that we're in, that it's something like this is actually not repairing it. It's, it's, it's actually, in a way, continuing it. Um, I would love to see nothing more than, than Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at the Senate podium together at a press conference. I would love to see that. And I would love to see uh, at, at some point Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and President Trump, perhaps in the, in the Rose Garden or the, or the White House briefing room together, talking about what they're doing as a, as a unit, as, as these branches of government together helping the American people. But, you know, they just hardly even talk to each other. I mean, I don't think Nancy Pelosi and President Trump can even talk to each other at this they point. They can't even be in the same room with each other. Well, yeah, and with the coronavirus, that makes it easy. Right. So, and then you've got Mitch McConnell and, and Chuck Schumer. There is no love lost and no trust lost there. They, those guys just are not, they don't even want to be in the same room together, probably let alone talk on the phone together. So, you know, if, I would love to see if there was a silver lining in this in Washington, D.C., it would be, to somehow repair a little bit of this complete fracture of comity between Republicans and Democrats, between the White House and the House, and between the House and the Senate. I, it's just, it, it's getting really old at this point. And I think they can do great things. They are doing really good things, I think, for the, for the American people that are hurting, businesses that are struggling, people that are, that are being laid off. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why the markets are staying somewhat stable is because they're doing stuff. There is action coming out of the White House. There is action coming out of, out of the Congress, but they got to, they got to behave a little bit better. I just think this is, this is, this is ridiculous. They, they literally seem like um, playground seventh graders.
Uh, they do. And I think they, the, the partisan tensions are, are always going to be there. I do remember after 9-11 where my boss, Denny Hastert, and Dick Eppart did press conferences together. And also they did uh, TV shows together. They did the Sunday shows together, largely to show that unity. I'm not sure if we're ever going to get there with this because this is a different type of enemy. We're not quite sure who this enemy is. And I think that it's a little bit different than, than Al-Qaeda. Um, and I'm talking about the balancing act here and the reopening of, of the economy and the president and how he communicates. Um, the president, as you know, is, um, is a little bit undisciplined. I think that's part of his, uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a bug in his communication, it's a feature. He's all about being undisciplined. And I think the press likes it. I think the American people like someone being off of talking points. That being said, you know, he does need to have a coherent and consistent message especially uh, when it comes to the idea of reopening the economy. And my own personal view is you don't reopen the economy until you reopen the schools. And I don't know, I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen. But um, uh, I hope it does because the kids need to get back to school. Um, that being said, the president needs a message to talk about supporting the, the small business of this, the backbone of, of American commerce my own personal view is that they, they, we need a Marshall Plan for Main Street. Um, what, what do you think the president needs to do to communicate more clearly on business? And does he need to be specific about a plan to reopen the economy? So <clears throat> with regard to presidential communication during a time of crisis, this is something that I've thought a lot about, both as a practitioner in the White House and as an observer uh, during this crisis with this president. So I will make this prescriptive uh, and not um, an opportunity to take pot shots. I think what would be most beneficial for the country and conveniently at the same time for the president is if he could slow down just a little bit, be really in sync with the people around him. When he stands at that podium and stands behind those people, He's telling all of us this is very important. And he's been signifying the importance of this now for a couple of weeks with these daily press conferences. I applaud him for that. And I think if he wants to take it to the next level, it's being much more disciplined about what the prevailing messages are and then not contradicting them. So I'm not saying anything new, but it would be new if we could do that. And it would stop crossing wires with governors and it would emphasize it would amplify the messages from healthcare workers, from public health professionals about how we're doing it, why we're doing it, and the, the end goal. So we get a lot of mixed messages, and right now that's very unhelpful. There's a lot of good going on. The Marshall Plan for Main Street is an excellent way to put it. I remember when you first brought this up, I know you've been in contact with folks at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and we are constantly working with small businesses, but this is exactly the kind of vision and leadership that we need. It is an all-in overwhelming force Marshall plan for Main Street that's going to get America back on its feet. Let's worry less about the, ex the, the details right now of when and start doing the formative work of exactly how. That's where the president can be most effective in his communication, I think. Uh, Johnny, so let's go to the predictions. Uh, when do you think the president will reopen the economy? Well, I don't think there's going to be a, a re opening like uh, okay on friday we're reopening the entire economy i mean 
you know, I, it, and that's where I think he got in a little bit of trouble with the Easter. I know he was being hopeful. I know he was being optimistic, op, optimi- what you, optimist in chief, I guess we were saying. And, and I don't blame him, but it was unrealistic. And I think that it invited a lot of his detractors to take a lot of shots at him. And, and I think this is going to be more of, and should be, in my opinion, more of a regional sort of uh, evaluation, right? So, I mean, you've got a lot of rural areas that haven't been touched by this. That doesn't mean that they should not be social distancing, but I think it, you, you probably would approach, you know, a, a town of, of 5,000 that hasn't seen coronavirus differently than you would Houston. Right? So I think in the coming months, that's one of the things that leaders like Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, um, and the Surgeon General and the President, the Vice President are gonna really look at is, okay, what, what can we do? And I think we're also gonna learn a lot by the aid that's being pushed out the, the door by not only the Small Business Administration, but of course the direct checks to Americans, the unemployment insurance, all these, we have a lot of different uh, uh, methods of aid that, are, that have gone out. We need to evaluate those, see what, uh, you know, where we can best open up, probably slowly, but me, like everybody else, I mean, we'd love to, as, as soon as that it's safe to get some of these communities up and running again. And I think that was, is probably going to be the best way. Annabella, when do you think we're going to open up the economy again? Well, it's not a switch to be flipped. It's just not binary. We're not open and we're not closed. We're in a twilight right now. It is going to be shades and uh, varying degrees of improvement as best we can in places where we can. Uh, the real important bit for federal government now is to build these bridges between the federal aid that is there and getting it into the hands of workers, families, and businesses who can use it and doing it quickly. Putting it out there does not absolve you. It doesn't say, well, we did our job, now you do your job. The job was to get it all the way through the pipeline into the people who needed it. We won't open this economy or keep it alive unless we can do that. That's an ongoing thing, and the president has only just begun to help us create and clear the underbrush and the red tape and all the things that you want to say that are in the way. We've got to do that, John. I predict that the president reopens the economy with a declaration, which may or may not work, of uh, May 15th. I think that that's when he's going to say, we're open for business again, baby. And then um, I think to all your points, the biggest problem for the president is he's going to try to lead, but I don't think a lot of governors are going to want to follow, with the one exception. I think Andrew Cuomo is itching to get New York started again because he wants to move through this because he knows that New York is really needs the commerce and he's been very aggressive much more aggressive than like gavin newsom or someone like that even though new york has faced the the, the worst of it uh he's the one who wants the uh of the democrats it seems to me he's the one who wants to move this economy going but my prediction is may 15th is when the president says okay we've had enough now i hope i hope that they open schools before then but i know that's not gonna happen i think and i'll add one thing before we close too is is it it's going to depend on testing too and and the ability for us as a country to have widespread massive testing apparently the fda just recently maybe in the last few days approved a blood test uh test for the antibodies of of coronavirus and uh, i think that's going to be ready to be to be um prepared on a on a huge scale millions of of tests and I think when you have that, then you start to understand what's happening in, in all these communities in terms of who has it, who does, 
who had it but is now clear, who who has it but is asymptomatic. Uh, you know, all of these things, and and it's going to give us a sense of how bad this is and and how quickly we can recover and and if it comes back what to do and and then i think you've got the confidence in terms of of opening economies back up again uh thank you john uh thank you adam um thank you all for joining the fury theory podcast brought to you by efb efb means essential for business